Welcome to the Rethinking Politics podcast, finding truth beyond the rhetoric. I'm Dan. I'm here with Brad. We're back here for episode four today. We're going to be discussing income inequality, and we're going to be discussing income inequality because it's one of a handful of topics that are on everybody's lips these days. It's all over Facebook. It's all over Twitter. It's all over articles, and it's it's even to some degree the talk of, of the upcoming political election. And boy, are we excited to talk about it. You know, it's interesting, Dan, because just a few days ago, right before we decided to talk about this, I saw a very interesting post on Facebook. And and I want to share a little bit about, about what the post says. Please do. And try and imagine as, as you hear these words that it's nice big red backdrop with big yellow words very provocative i was provoked <laughs> so here we go I was gonna, that's how most facebook posts look these days they seem nope. to all be absolutely provocative so i'm just going to share some excerpts from this okay here we go you cannot be anti-racist without being anti-capitalist here's why Capitalism is a political economic system built on inequality. By nature, it concentrates power via wealth, material resources, control over the means of production, into the hands of a ruling class at the top of society. This creates a system of haves and have-nots, where the people have increasingly less equity, less social mobility, and less power. It is a competitive hierarchical structure that necessitates oppression, exploitation, and domination. And in order to survive, capitalism deploys many ideological tactics to distract us from this fact. Racism is an ideology that upholds this balance. The police are the ultimate enforcers of capitalism. Racism and capitalism cannot be unraveled. So what is the alternative? Socialism. Socialism is a political economic system built on solidarity. Socialism has a strong legacy within the civil rights movement. And then it goes on to talk a little bit more about socialism and some of the advantages it has over capitalism. And by the way, I should clarify, when my voice got exaggerated, I was trying to accentuate the differences in the size of font you know those those words like <laughs> capitalism and racism I see you're tracking. were very yes. large yes i i noted the difference in pronunciation i couldn't i i appreciate the explanation there it was my audio visual interpretation of what i was looking at but when i read this post it was very interesting because because i mean first of all i am not a socialist but what they were saying made sense. And I, as I read more and more of this post, I liked what they were saying more and more because it was interesting and it was making me think. And so I would really love to take a look at this and take a look at, at capitalism and socialism and why, why we might be so unhappy with capitalism to the point that it has become a bit of a, a buzzword. You know, to deserve a post a buzzword, like this. Yeah. Right, right. I mean, it, you'd think that, I mean, Marx often talks about capitalism. Marx, obviously the founder of, of communism, um, wrote a great deal about the subject. Capitalism is the big uh, boogeyman per se in his work. It is interesting that these kind of ideas are floating around again or still or... The most interesting thing to me of that is that, as you suggested... 
If an idea has that kind of staying power, you need an explanation. In some ways, you, you have to validate it somewhat, at least somewhat, and say, what is it about this? Even if you disagree with it completely, what is it about socialism that is so appealing that it's still here and that it's there's still lots of people who want to try it. It's still considered the answer to a lot of our problems. Now that that post you indicated covered a lot of different ideas, covered a lot it of did. Turf, it did far more than we could possibly possibly approach in a single episode. In particular, it mentioned racism, which is another huge issue uh, that everybody's talking about today. We're going to set aside racism for this episode. We're not going to be discussing racism in in its relationship to capitalism. Yet. Not yet. We will. Not this episode. What we want to do is we want to talk about capitalism and socialism and, or more specifically, talk about capitalism in in a better way so that we can understand what they're referring to. And to begin with, capitalism is not a good term. It's not a good term. It doesn't capture... I'd be shocked if more than 20% of the people who hear the word capitalism have anything remotely resembling a good idea of what it is. Most of the time when we talk capitalism, what we're talking about is just America as it is, or you know, Western countries as they are. And Or even more than that, de- it's about businesses. <laughs> businesses first. Businesses control <laughs> yeah. the economy, and that's it. That's capitalism. Right. Big business right. especially. We- right. You associate with business. You say this is this is capitalism. Capitalism is where the businesses make the decisions, or the businesses have the power, um, and that's somewhat helpful. But uh, but we're going to define it, and we're going to get into it a little bit, and and see if we can explore that. Well, and I just want to say one thing before you continue, Dan. Part of the reason I like this post is because it did capture something that a lot of people feel, and something that I feel, which is that. There is a systemic problem, a systemic problem where it feels like the few are exploiting the many, right? And, 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 you know, and they talked about racism, but they also talked about capitalism and about how in our current system, this doesn't seem just or fair or whatever other word you want to use to describe it. And a lot of people feel that a lot of people feel frustration and even anger about how things are and that is very legitimate and I want to recognize that and say yeah I I feel that way too which is why we need to take a deeper look at it and that's what I'd really like to do here right so many people discard socialism out of hand because of the the scope of socialism's claims uh, the claims of of fundamental corruption are hard to deal with especially especially given some of the positives of capitalism it, just drawing a dictionary definition of capitalism. An economic system characterized by private or corporate ownership of capital goods, by investments that are determined by private decision, and by prices, production, and the distribution of goods that are determined mainly by competition in a free market. You'll note that that definition, which is from Merriam-Webster, is not exclusive None of the words used there refer to an exclusive form. So like an economic system characterized, not exclusively characterized, by investments that are determined by private decision. In general, the distribution of goods that are determined mainly by competition in a free market. Which means that capitalism is 
in a lot of ways, a loose term. It's very a, general. It's, it's very general. And if that seems imprecise to you, or if that seems like it's not exactly useful today, it's because it's generally used in comparison to old forms of, of government. So like if you're talking feudalism, where feudalism, where you've got a feudal lord who owns everything, essentially, he owns all the land. And then and you the have people. serfs who, <laughs> and the people for That's all practical purposes. That's a very purposes, important not, part of feudalism. Right, they're not. Is that they are his quite, vassals. Right, they're not quite slaves. It's, it's a different relationship than slavery. But in practice, it means a lot of the same things. And in feudalism, yeah, I would you say it's a, a form of slavery. It's a different yeah, form, but it a, is a form mm-hmm. of slavery. Right. So often slavery is used to exclusively refer to the kind of relationship you see in the American South. And that's not what slavery looks like in most parts of the world at most times in the world. Um, so yes, I think it would be accurate to say and probably better defined as, as you said, as a form of slavery. It's certainly a form of servitude. And uh, when you look at that kind of feudalism where all the wealth is concentrated in the hands of feudal lords and kings, royalty, nobles, and that, and they have literally everything in terms of ownership. They own everything of any kind of importance and they will, no matter what you do, (laughs) then capitalism, where you have private ownership and you have private decisions and you have a marketplace and competition, all of those things are vastly different than feudalism. But when you're comparing shades of different kinds of republics republics and democracies, like if you're comparing America and Norway, to say which one is capitalist is not actually a very useful question. Because most of the Western countries use some form of capitalism. There aren't many feudal or even mercantilist, for example, as another form of of economic theory. There aren't many, many countries that exercise those, especially in in the Western world. You know, you can find exceptions to that. But I mean, you look across Europe, especially, and you will see different forms of capitalism to one degree or another. Right. And so then it becomes a matter of what kind of capitalism are you talking about? Because just like you said, with democracy, it's too general of a word. It means too many things to almost even be useful at that point. Right. You wouldn't say, oh, you live in a democracy. That's good. Your country's wonderful. Now, you might say that if you're comparing it to a monarchy, right? You might say, okay, it's better. (laughs) Just like you might say capitalism is better than feudalism. But to compare, again, it's just too general a term, as you were saying. Like usually when you're looking at at modern-day economies, what you're looking at is a specific industry. And you're asking, is this industry driven by capitalism? Is it driven by uh, private ownerships, private decisions, distribution of goods that are determined by these private entities? And is there competition? Is that what sets the prices? You know, these are the factors that you'd say, this industry is perhaps more or less capitalistic, or this industry is not capitalist if it's driven heavily by state by the state. Things like you think of like socialized healthcare in some countries. Um, that socialized healthcare you'd say is probably not capitalistic. It's not capitalist. But in general, every modern economy is capitalist still. 
very much capitalist. Even the social democracies, no, like Norway and Sweden in those, they're, they're absolutely capitalist. Which means that in order to have a useful conversation, we need to clarify. And so, so for me, a benchmark that I like to look at is when I'm looking at an economy, I, I look and see, is it state controlled or is it individually controlled? Because that can be a much more useful benchmark when you're looking at these different forms of capitalism. Yeah, and that makes far more sense as a way of comparing it. It's a much better scale. If you're looking at state-controlled versus individual-controlled, then you can actually have a productive discussion that fits in with what we understand about government. And I understand why people use capitalist. I mean, it's the language, it's been the language of communism and uh, offshoots like socialism from the beginning. So it makes sense that they they turn to that word, but it's also it's well, also it less also precise. has become the main word for proponents of of capitalism. They use that term as well. Everyone yeah, now true. uses it's the true. term capitalism. There is no other term. Just like when you talk about government, you only say a democracy or not a democracy. There's no no one ever talks yeah, you about distinguish republics you know, and. A, yeah, a yeah. republic or anything like that. No, it's just a democracy. We live in a in a democracy or we don't. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's the capitalism or it's not, even though it's much yeah. more nuanced than that. Yeah, it's very common that this happens to political words. You get a, you get a word, it becomes political, it begins to mean something, and you want to, to win a political argument. You, a lot of times all you need to do is get the right word with the right connotation. And so political arguments are often about the connotation and meaning of a word. And it's a, it's an, it's interesting to see like what liberal means in America versus what it means in Europe. Capitalism is a really good example of how a word that people have fought over for a long time. You can look at how people fight over the phrase black lives matter versus all lives matter today. Those phrases invoke all kinds of things, a right to choose versus right to life, right? These phrases yeah, they're just they're just simple words, the but now they phrases. have a whole new level of right. meaning. Right. They imply all kinds of things. That's one of the problems with capitalist and why we wanted to define it, get it to a, a definition so you know what we're talking about and what, what we're discussing in this conversation. So if we're going to define this word, what is capital? You know, that's what that's the root where that's where it comes from. It's capitalism. What is capital? Capital, when you break it down, is very simple. Capital is, is something that you have created of value to be used later. So, for example, if we went back, Dan, to our favorite story of me and you in the wilderness, me with my fishing and you with your berries, and you every day went out and picked berries, and you could pick a hundred berries every day. And that was, that was your capacity. They were wild berries. You didn't have to do anything else, but you could go out and pick them. You would not be using capital, but let's say that you wanted to get more berries. And so you decide to make a stick and you spend two hours sharpening a stick so that you can use it to then collect even more berries that stick would actually be capital. It would be a capital investment that you have made. It's also called a capital good or physical capital. And it's something that you created through the use of your energy, your labor, to then allow you to make more. And now that you have this stick, 
you're able to produce more, right? Now you're able to do 200 berries a day instead of 100. And so there's a clear cause and effect where as you increase your capital, you're able to increase how much you make, right? In this primitive, in this primitive world. I mean, it's, when you look at it in that way, it's such a simple idea. It's, it's really what you're doing is, is you're saving. Cause I mean, in this case, it's, it's not saving your money. All you can do is, is save your, your, let me think of the right way to put this. You're actually saving your consumption because during those two hours when you make that stick, yeah. you can't collect berries that you could have eaten. Yeah. Instead, you're going to make the stick. You're giving up those berries, that reward right now, in exchange for a bigger reward later. Right. And that's what capital is, is you're, you're putting off consumption now for larger consumption later. Yeah. In a, in a modern economy, it looks slightly different because you use money as a, as a go-between. And so instead of, instead of, uh, that example, you would say either I'm not earning money or I'm, uh, not spending my money from before so that I can save it to invest time or money into making this capital. Um, and that, that is capital at the most basic level. That was a, I, I love that illustration. Um, you, so capital in its basic form, as Brad indicated, is something to increase productivity later. And it comes at a cost now, which is why when you think of the word investment, that's exactly what it implies, right? You're investing something now. You're taking money or goods or time or something now that you would rather, like I would rather pick the berries and eat them right now. But this will be better in the long run. And that's always the idea. You're, you're putting off a present good for a future greater good. And that's, that is the only reason that you would invest. That's the only reason you would make capital. That's what motivates people to do so. And a lot of people think that in the modern world, only large corporations who have large, you know, large cash war chests are able to make those kind of investments or or capital purchases. But everyone on a regular basis makes decisions that involve capital. A great example of that would be purchasing a car. You know, purchasing a car is a large initial expenditure that requires a lot of money. And so you're giving up certain things in exchange for the increased productivity later instead of having to take the bus yeah. or or bike or or whatever else or pay for a taxi. You now can drive yourself and increase your own personal productivity. Yeah, and you'll know what Brad did in that example because – what you did there, Brad, is, is you substituted money and time. And you, you talked about how, how in a lot of ways, by that description, anything that saves you time could be considered capital in some way. And that's such a crucial key to understanding economics because they are interchangeable in a lot of ways. We're talking about economics is not just about money and goods. It's about time and it's about choices. Now, in America today, you can do basic activities for minimum wage and get, what is minimum wage right now? It's going to vary state to state. I know uh, I have a sister-in-law that is working for like seven something an hour at the, at the state minimum wage, the state that she's in. 
That price may seem relatively low in America, and it is. It's, just, it's quite literally as low as you can pay someone in America legally. But if you compare it to the lowest amount you would make in another country, the math begins to look very different. You go to Africa and you can do backbreaking work all day and make less than a dollar the whole day. That yeah, it's seems unjust. That seems like like there there needs to be an explanation for why that's the case. And what people don't realize is that the difference is is quite literally capital. And there's different forms of capital. We're talking about capital goods. There's also capital in the form of uh, there's human capital, right? Things like knowledge and skills. But we're talking about very basic skills here. We're not. But it's the capital that is at a place like McDonald's that allows them to pay their workers. Seven to ten dollars an hour, instead of less than one dollar an hour, because the capital makes their labor worth more. Because capital can take unskilled labor and make it worth a lot more than it would be otherwise. No, and and another great example of that would be if you go back, let's say three hundred years, the vast majority. Of those employed in the United States were employed in some kind of farm work in agriculture. They were just producing food, you know, for their consumption and for others' consumption, right? Right. And now you flash forward to today, and everyone is eating. And I think it's pretty obvious that everyone's eating more than we were 300 years ago. And yet, such a tiny fraction of the population. Is working in an agriculture job, and the reason for that is because because of the capital that is now used in agriculture in farming has transformed the process so that what used to take two hundred individuals is now taking one, or maybe even five hundred individuals is taking one, and so it has freed up all of these individuals. All of these people can now do something else. That was never there before, right? And that's something that's happened over and over and over again in the United States. As we have gained more and more and more capital, we have freed up more and more people to do more and more things, and as a result, everyone has gotten more because instead of spending the majority of your income—and I mean the vast majority of your income—on just food. You now can spend it on so many more things, many of which didn't even exist back right. then. Right, and it's so. This is where what's so baffling to me because this is already where where I think a lot of socialists have uh, some mistaken assumptions about the way capital works. That that this should that I wish this would end permanently, because my life, as you just indicated, in a, in many different ways, my life is much better because. Other people own capital. Now, I own capital, like you said. I have a car. I have a, a washer and dryer. I have a dishwasher. These kind of things are make my life much better. They make they make my time much more effective. But even if I didn't have all those things, even if I had no capital at all myself, my life is way better. My unskilled labor is worth way more. My choices for goods are far more diverse, far cheaper. My the opportunities I have in the world are far better because other people own capital. 
And if, and if that, just give that a second to sink in. Because if that's true, if you are better off, even if you don't own capital, just by its existence, just by its presence and being put to productive use in the hands of other people, then there's something fundamentally wrong. Then there are some things about socialism that need to be rethought. Now, now to clarify, there are some things about capitalism that people see that are real issues. So where do those issues come about? From this one idea of capital as this amazing tool that we can use to benefit each other and benefit ourselves to a time and a place where there can be Facebook posts about about this exploitation that that I can read and just resonate with. So so there's a disconnect there, right? And I want to address that disconnect between the theoretical capital and reality. And that disconnect is so critical because as we mentioned at the beginning, I the claims of socialism resonate with us. So many of their ideas, they look at the system, they look at how it ends up, they look at their own opportunities and the opportunities of people they know, they look at how uh, how it ends up playing out, they see what people who are very wealthy can get away with, and they come away and they think, I'm being robbed. And what we're going to mm-hmm. propose is that they're not wrong. They're not wrong. Now, they look at it and they say, the problem is capitalism. We need to fundamentally overthrow the system. That would be a mistake. But we might be have a mistake a for the reasons we outlined. <laughs> right. But, but, but in the basic idea, they're not wrong. And what we need to do is we need to go and we need to look through very carefully the way that capitalism works and the way it uh, – different ways it could work and see where it's gone wrong because – if the majority of people are beginning to feel like they're being robbed, conservatives, then perhaps you should consider the possibility that they're actually right. Maybe there is a lot of widespread injustice. There are systemic things that we can fix. So let's figure it out. And I think the easiest way, as I've mentioned many times before in our previous podcast, is to is to to go back and look at look at some history. And the history that I would love to look at is the robber barons. I'm not sure how many of you have heard of the term robber barons before. The robber barons, the idea behind robber barons is very simple. It's that individuals in the late 19, 19th century, early 1900s, gained a large amount of money through nefarious means, basically. Through crooked means, at least. Whether legal or not, right? And, and there's a famous, there's a, there's a, they have a reputation. Let me say it, let me say it that way. You know, for example, you know, John D. Rockefeller, you know, Vanderbilt, um, Dodge, uh, Leland Stanford, Henry Villiard, James J. Hill, and others are some examples of those. I mean, a lot of you probably know Rockefeller as, as a famous example of that, where he just became incredibly, incredibly wealthy and people aren't so sure about whether or not that was just. And so there's one particular case that I would love to look at. And that was the great 
railroad boom in the mid-1800s, the 19th century. Because you can see in action the difference between a market that is controlled by individuals and a market that is controlled by the state. And the difference that comes not just for the for the businesses, but also for the people. So the first thing I'd like to talk about is the great Union Pacific and Central Pacific Railroads. The Transcontinental Railroad, the first one in the United States. I mean, absolutely famous, the Golden Spike. That actually happened here in Utah. So most people have heard of that. Hopefully you've heard of that, Dan. Hopefully some people in our audience have. Oh, yeah. If you haven't, let me tell you a little bit about it. It started out in the Civil War. In the Civil War, there was a lot going on, but there was also a call for great internal infrastructure. And that was something that was actually a part of the party platform when when Lincoln became president and something that he pushed for. And so even before the war was over, the Pacific Railroad Act of 1862 created the Union Pacific and Central Pacific Railroads. So this was a government-subsidized railroad program creating these two companies. And one was going to build on the East Coast, and one was going to build in the West, and they were going to come and they were going to meet in the middle, right? And the idea was, is that railroad tracks are very expensive to build, and it takes a long time to get the money back, right? And so the government was going to step in and help pay for that so that we could get this infrastructure because it was going to help everyone, connecting the country, therefore allowing commerce to spread like wildfire, right? That's the yeah, idea. Yeah, it's a common it's a common story. Uh, you need the subsidies. There are, there needs to be subsidies for goods that are going to be beneficial for everybody, but that have such a long time to take such a long time to pay off or may not pay off directly that you need to have government involvement. Yeah, a good parallel would be um, you know, Google Fiber and other optic fiber companies that have been subsidized and have been helped along by government because a private company can't do it on their own is the idea, right? So these two railroad companies were created in the middle of the Civil War. And for each mile of track that they built, the government would give them a section of land which they could sell and a loan. And the loan would be $16,000 per mile for track that was built on flat land. 32,000 per mile for hilly terrain and 48,000 in the mountains. So, doesn't sound like a lot now, but but back then that was a considerable a lot of money. That was a lot of money. <laughs> so, and this is going to come as a huge surprise to you, but these these men who were put in charge of these railroads had one goal and one goal only, <laughs> and that was to build as much track as quickly as possible and as cheaply as possible to take advantage of these huge sums of money because there were no there were no stipulations on on how straight the track was or things like that and so they were going to take advantage of this <laughs> so in fact often they would build winding or not non-direct routes for these rail tracks in order to increase the mileage and on top of that they were in a hurry. They were in a constant hurry. And so they would cut 
corners on expenses. For example, they would use fragile cottonwood, which wasn't as strong. They would get whatever trees were close by and use those to to lay the to to lay the uh, to lay the rails on. Um, for example, uh, Dodge, who was in charge of Granville Dodge, who was in charge of Union Pacific's workforce, he was a he was the chief engineer. He was in such a hurry that he would actually lay the track on the ice and snow during the winter, not on the ground beneath it. <laughs> so you would have ice and snow that had piled yeah, up several feet above terrible. the ground. And instead of plowing that snow away, he would just build right on top of that snow and ice. And then a few months later, they would have to rebuild it. That's terrible. You know, same thing goes with with bridges, with with tunnels. All of that was was rushed because it didn't really matter. All that mattered was getting that money. Yeah, and this is this is one of the accusations of against capitalism, right? It's all it's driven by money. Yeah, and all we want is the is the dollar, and so we don't care. So after seven years, the two subsidized railroads they finally meet in Utah. Hooray. Everyone was very excited. It was a huge deal. I mean, we just celebrated here in Utah the the something year anniversary. It was a crazy number. I mean, 1869, I have to calculate it because it was 19. 150 year anniversary. The 150 year anniversary of that event. That's a long time. But what was crazy is that even after those seven years... The next five years, they had to go and rebuild whole sections of the track because they were so poorly built originally that they weren't worth using. So they had to go rebuild bridges, take care of bad lines, figure out because they had so many tracks in the in the mountain ranges that were just getting destroyed and they didn't know what to do because they didn't plan for it in the first place, right? right? So that sounds it's... pretty bad. I'm not done. <laughs> Some people may have heard of the credit mobular scandal. Mobilier. I hadn't heard of it until Sorry, we were looking at this It's a very hard word to say. But, well, it's probably because you weren't alive in the 1800s. I could be part in of it. In the 1800s, this was huge. This, this was Watergate proportions of scandal. It affected the presidential race. You know, Congress got sucked into it. Many laws were made because of it. But here's what happened. So... The uh, Union Pacific managers, they created their own company and as the credit mobiler. And they were so they were in charge of both these companies, right? And credit mobiler would then sell or 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 they would do work for Union Pacific at double the normal rate. <laughs> And so, so what these Union Pacific managers were trying to do was double up their income. They were, first of all, getting these huge amounts of income from the federal government, and then they were double paying themselves so that they could take profit off the top of there, right? <laughs> oh, boy. I mean, it was a crazy time. It was a crazy time. Yeah, I mean, here's an example from- Robber Barons, yes. Right, right. It's disgusting. It is. I mean, disgusting. here's an example from the 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 historian uh, U. P. Folsom. Here's a quote: In 1866, Thomas Durant, he was the uh, the the president, wined and dined prominent citizens, including senators, an ambassador, and government bureaucrats, along a completed section of the railroad. He hired an orchestra, a caterer, six cooks, a magician, and a photographer. 
He served Chinese duck, Roman goose, the more adventurous were offered roast ox and antelope. All could have expensive wine, and for dessert, strawberries, peaches, and cherries. After dinner, some of the men hunted buffalo from their coaches. <laughs> Durant hoped that all would go back to Washington, inclined to repay the UP for its hospitality. That's... And in addition, they would even give uh, free railroad passes and even credit Mobiler stock to members of Congress in order to convince them to support this. That is so corrupt. Which is it's crazy, so, right? It's, so straight up, it's straight so, up bribery. Yeah. Straight up corruption. And you and like you said, this is where the robber baron's term starts to develop. You can see this. It's disgusting. And you can see where people start to get a bad taste for capitalism. And, and so Congress responds in uh, 1874 by passing all kinds of regulations on these companies, trying to stop them from doing anything wrong, right? But the net result of that is that not only can they do nothing wrong, but they can do nothing right as well. They lose all semblance of efficiency and, and fall apart. Within a few years, in 1893, uh, Union Pacific actually goes bankrupt. They 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 can't they can't cut it, and eventually most of these railroads who are subsidized go bankrupt. And it's because of these regulations. Even though, and this is what's so crazy, even though they were given all this free right. money, they still couldn't. Right, stay and that's that's so contrary to what what uh, standard wisdom would say. What they what people would say today is. Often would say, often the people who are talking about inequality and about uh, socialism as a solution to to the problems of capitalism would say, if you gave us a bunch of free money, we could do what any of the businesses are doing. Right? We the the difference between them and us is opportunity. It's it's privilege. It's these other things. Mm-hmm. Here are examples of of groups that had free money handed to them, massive amounts of free money. And went bankrupt in a few years. Couldn't even make something so that actually even worked, let alone made a profit. Exactly. They couldn't even stay in business. So now let's cut over to James J. Hill. Now, James J. Hill, I love this story because this happens at the same time, but totally different. So James J. Hill was was your classic rags to riches story right he drops out of school to work in a grocery store um as as a young adult he works in all kinds of all kinds of jobs you know farming uh shipping fur trading railroad industries so he learns a lot of of experience of business experience in particular and saves his money he's very frugal yeah. right it's good and he uses that money like I said, we talked about that capital. He uses that capital to eventually, with a few other partners, purchase a bankrupt railroad. And what's amazing about this is that the bankrupt railroad he purchases is actually a government-subsidized railroad, the Northern Pacific, that that <laughs> goes bankrupt. It's uh, So it's actually Northern Pacific. It was a small branch of Northern Pacific that goes bankrupt a small Minnesota railroad. So he buys up this railroad and and they basically go from the ground up and redo the whole business, right? And from the beginning, they have they have really two goals which is which is incredible efficiency 
and they want it to last because they do not have any subsidies. They do not have any government contracts. So they have to make a profit or they're done. And, and he's putting everything he has into this company. So, so he redesigns the company and they focus on quality and speed. And quickly, within a few years, under his direction, they're actually able to lay track twice as quickly as the Northern Pacific companies were, and yet they were building it at a much higher quality. And that's the that's and let me just pause you there for a second, because this is another thing that people tend to believe about capitalism. This is two different stories, both occur in capitalism per se, and he's building with high quality goods. That should seem out of place if you're familiar with the arguments of socialism. Carry on. We'll, we'll return to that. And and first of all, I, I love this guy. I, I only learned about him recently, but the more I find out, the more I like. His motto was literally this, quote, We have got to prosper with you, or we have got to be poor with you. End quote. And so what he does is he actually stands by that. He actually... Um, teaches people about crop diversification in order to try and help them prosper along his rail lines. He goes out of his way to build, uh, to stockpile wood and other fuel depots near his depots so that farmers could stock up when they come to his trains to try and help them out. He would transport immigrants for a cheaper rate if they promised to build near his railroad, he would even help out those who were in need because he understood that when they got back on their feet, they would once again be able to use his rail lines, which is the whole purpose of having them. I mean, it was so interesting. He constantly dropped his rates for his areas over and over and over again. And it constantly got cheaper and cheaper and cheaper because he was so efficient. And you would think, hey, he's got the only rail line in the area. Why wouldn't he jack up the price, right? right. It would appear that this is a, an almost natural monopoly. Right, an almost natural monopoly. But he understood that the more he lowered his rates, the more the people who live there would prosper and the more they would do and the more they would produce and the more they would use his lines and he would then benefit as well. It was this upward spiral that he created because he created these areas where the rail lines were so cheap that people wanted to go there and become farmers or whatever business because they could Right. versus going somewhere else where it was way more expensive right. and there wasn't right. that people opportunity. People have this set and it's brilliant it's an from the perspective of entrepreneurship because if you were to have a set perspective and say, I have X amount of customers and what I want to do is get the most money from them I can, you would not have done that. You would have, you would have tried to raise the price or you'd have tried to, if you thought it was you versus the customer, this would have been much less profitable, much less profitable. But he creates these areas like towns spring up around these, around his railroads and they grow and they grow rapidly because of what he's doing. And all of that may, all of that is good for them, and it's good for him. Now, if you like this guy, I'm not finished. So from 1886 to 1893, so a, a few years after the first transcontinental railroad was built, Hill actually builds his own transcontinental railroad without any help from the government. And, and he does it not because... 
he's trying to make money off the government, but because there's an actual need for it. And so he builds it efficiently, he builds it carefully, and he builds it to last the same way he did before. Um, here's an example, another another quote from that historian about his process. Hill's quest for short routes, low grades, and few curvatures was an obsession. In 1889, Hill conquered the Rocky Mountains by finding the legendary Marios Pass. Lewis and Clark had described a low pass through the Rockies back in 1805, but later no one seemed to know whether it really existed or, if it did, where it was. Hill wanted the best gradient so much that he hired a man to spend months searching western Montana for this legendary pass. He did in fact find it, and the ecstatic Hill shortened his route by almost 100 miles. It's <laughs> a lot of track. And, and I, I love that example because, because, yeah, it's a huge amount, but if your goal is to build as many miles as possible, why would you, <laughs> you ever you do would, that? Yeah. You would just build the a long circuit circuitous route um circuitous route that went all the way around that range in order to make as much money as possible and even though it may make it a terrible train track to actually use if you're a business right or if you're an individual trying to get from one side Uh to the other yeah and it makes sense because that efficiency is not only good for the customers who want a shorter route but it's good for him who wants shorter wants less costs it's a their their interests align perfectly as opposed to the group who was being funded on a different incentive Mm -hmm. and like i said he was a very amazing individual and a very amazing company because of that contrast what's sad though is that after after the scandal and these other subsidized companies had all these issues congress starts to pass regulation some specifically for those companies but some of that regulation applied to all railroad commerce. And that began to have a negative effect on his business because even though he wasn't doing anything wrong, he was getting treated like yeah. he was, right? And and it began to it began to seriously hurt his his business. And even though, you know, it may not have destroyed it, it definitely it definitely had an impact. And the saddest thing, though, is that in history now, he his railroad company is lumped in with the others as just another robber baron who was, was doing whatever it takes to make a profit instead of someone who was actually interested in, in progressing. And most of it was out of selfish intent. He was trying to build his company up. But in the process... He made the lives of so many individuals better, which I it think is really, really cool. cool. And, it, and it, the reason we're telling you two stories of capitalism should be pretty obvious. These these both occurred under capitalism. In you know loose, loose, loosely using the word, this is capitalism. Both of them, both of them are completely different. Both of them are driven by completely different motives. Both of them had completely different outcomes. Both of them. Uh, because of their different incentives had different impacts on the customers. Um, you look at, you look at Hill who, who by, with every step he took benefited his customers, benefited the people who interacted with him. And then you look at, uh, these other ones who at every step were ripping someone off. Um, this is two very different tales of capitalism. And unless you can distinguish them, 
you're going to take the good of capitalism and you're going to lump it in with the bad, which is exactly what happens when historians consider this time. They look at these, at these entrepreneurs, they look at everyone who got rich during this time, and they assume that they did so unjustly and that there's something evil about them, that there's something wrong with them. But the distinction that we would make between Hill and between these other companies is what some have called a market entrepreneur versus a political entrepreneur. And these terms are extremely useful because it, it's describing the incentives that they're operating on, right? Hill builds a really high quality railroad. Why does he build it high quality? Because he has to pay for it if it's not. If he has to go back and fix it, if a train tips over and falls off for a private company, that's probably all it would take to drive him under. He can't afford to do that. He, yeah, it'd be devastating. It would be devastating for his company and could and would likely end it. So he builds it high quality. He builds it quickly. Why does he build it quickly? For the same reason. This invest. This is an investment for him. He is making no money until it is done. So he builds it quickly. He builds it high quality. He builds it short. He wants to get there as fast as possible. He can't afford to waste money on these things. All of these incentives for him line up with the incentives you want if you're the customer, if you're going to be one of the people who might benefit from this. The better he does at making money, the better, the more pleased his customers will be, the better off they're going to be. And the worse he does, the worse off they are. This other group built a railroad, both built a railroad. One of them screwed a lot of people over. <laughs> one of them helped a lot of people. And the difference is one of them was a market entrepreneur. He went out there he, with the incentives of the marketplace, which includes pleasing the customer. He's also got to please the workers, the people that work for him. He has to work with them and negotiate with them. And he has to please the people who invested money. He's got to get a payoff in there. He's got to make, he's got to align the interests of these groups in a way so that he can make as much as, so that he can actually make a profit. Can contrast that with the political entrepreneurs. What are the incentives of the political entrepreneurs? Well, for them, it has little to do with the profit at the end. They're getting money now. And they're getting money now by whining and dining politicians. Of course their incentives are different. Of course their outcomes are different. What incentive do they have to build a high-quality railroad? They're already making money. They're making money just by existing. The government's supporting them. What incentive do they have to, to really work with the customers? What incentives do they have to be responsible with the money they have when it's cost them nothing? Like All of these things, if you think about it in those terms, the outcomes become predictable. Not completely predictable. Hill could have failed, right? He could have been less skilled or less effective and, and, uh, or maybe he, uh, misplanned or, or people backed out or, or mm -hmm. any number of things could have gone wrong. But if he does it well, that the other things fall into place is, is very predictable. What, what happens if the political entrepreneur does well? What does that look like? Well, it looks like them getting lots of free stuff. And those people are, make no mistake, a political entrepreneur is screwing everybody else over. And this is where, when you think in terms of inequality, when you think socialism and capitalism, there's often two very different mindsets at play. If you're thinking about a market, what you're thinking about is win-win. 
A market exchange is a win-win. If I make a deal with you and you don't like that deal, there's no, no deals going to happen. No exchange is going to happen. For an exchange to happen between two willing parties, both of them have to think that they would be better off. Both of them have to choose to do it. And then, and thus, each exchange, as long as there's no coercion involved, is going to be a win-win. It's going to make each side better. And Hill is operating in that world every step. And let me let me add to that. Please. A lot of people think that when people make a trade in, in a market situation, that the trade is supposed to be equal. That my... Yeah. Let's say I'm selling a widget, right? Or let's say I'm selling my fish. If my fish you have are a fish? equal to 10 of your berries, I'm going <laughs> oh, back to like, our fish when and berries. When did you get a pet fish? Random aside. <laughs> you know, my, my fish is equal to 10 of your berries, right? But that's not what's going on. What I'm saying is that 10 of your berries is worth more to me than my fish. If they were worth the same, I wouldn't even try yeah. I wouldn't care. Just like if you thought that my fish was worth the same as your berries, you just keep the berries if they're worth the same. But no, it's worth more to you, hence your even incentive to be there and make the trade in the first place. And that's the same with money. If I go to the store and I buy a candy bar for a dollar, I'm not saying, eh, this dollar or a candy bar, I don't care which one I'd have, they're equal. No, I won't buy the candy bar right, if, if they're equal. If you didn't care that's which one you stupid. had, you wouldn't buy it. Obviously, yeah. I think the yeah, exactly. I would keep what I already had. There has to be a reason for me to make the trade. And the reason is, is that after I make the trade, I'm going to be better off. One more thought, and this is what's crazy about how the free market works, is that what that means is that every time someone makes a trade, value is created. Because you have two people who have a certain amount of stuff that they value so. After they make that trade, both of them are going to value what they have more. Therefore, their value has increased. And that's what we mean by win-win. We don't mean win-win like, oh, yeah, I feel yeah. good about this. You know, Stephen Covey, I like, <laughs> I like, you know, no, no, we're talking, we're talking about after I make this trade, I am better off and you are better off. Therefore, this trade has literally created value for both of us. And that happens every single time a, tri a trade is made. As long as there's no coercion involved. It is crazy. Which is crazy. Is crazy. And that's the other thing is that these once you realize that value is created in every exchange, as long as the exchange is willing, as long as there's no coercion involved, no force, no fraud involved, then... Yeah, as soon as you introduce force, right, everything if, goes Right, if someone's out. lying to you... It's a right, totally different story. If you're valuing story. something in, because you think what you're trading is, is something else other than what it actually is, then... Right. There's a mistake. There's either a mistake there or fraud on the part of the seller. Or if someone's forcing you to do it, then that's a completely different question. The, the, the math changes completely. But as long as those things are not present, every exchange is mutually beneficial. Each person leaves with more value than when they, than before they made the trade. And, and part of why this gets so confused is because we talk of, we talk about trades very differently because we're often talking about getting the best trade in a circumstance. We're talking about the art of negotiation. And so two people come together and they trade, they make a trade and one of them leaves and they go, man, you know, he probably would have paid another 10 bucks if I would have asked for it. He got the better deal. He got the better deal. I didn't charge him as much yeah, as I, I should Yeah, I got screwed. I got screwed. I lost. I lost. And 
if that were true, if that were really true in the way that we're talking about it, you wouldn't have made the deal. You thought you were going to be better off. Now, maybe you could have got a better deal. That's not the question. Maybe you could have traded $40 for the item instead of $50. But even if that's true, you made the trade because you'd rather have the item than $50. You might regret losing $10 unnecessarily, but that is an entirely different experience than saying, than, than this other one, which is saying, I would rather have that item than the $50. If that makes sense. It's, it's, it's about judging the, the, the quality of the trade in terms of what we could negotiate is a very different thing. And at that point, we might say, oh, it was equal, or we got a better deal, or they got a better deal, and I'm worse off. That is an entirely different conversation than the, than the truth underneath it, which is that every exchange is mutually beneficial. You can, the two can exist in the same world, if that makes sense. Yeah, and it's just a matter of how you think about it. It's a matter of how you think about it. And you're, just a matter of how and we're you not saying you it. shouldn't leave an exchange and be like, man, I should have negotiated better. If you should have negotiated better, you could have you should negotiate better. But that doesn't change the fact Just that like the you may buy that candy bar and eat it <laughs> and say, hey, you know, I should not have eaten that candy bar. I should have just kept the or, dollar. Or, but it doesn't yeah. change the fact that or say you, I should have paid less for it. Yeah, that you gained that value at the time or yeah, or that I wish I could have got for it for 90 cents. And if I would have waited, maybe or I would have I could have talked him down or something or. Maybe I could have. Maybe I could have. Those kind of... Or I could have waited till there was a sale next yes, week. Yes, yes. All these things are questions about whether whether or not that deal is better or worse for you compared to other theoretical deals you could make. That's a different question than of, do I want this thing more than I want what I'm offering for it? And as Brad indicated, if there's an, if an exchange took place, then in the moment, it's it's... You did, and... And what's important is that you are getting, it's better for you and it's better for them. Um, hopefully that doesn't become too confusing by adding that additional thing about people negotiating trade. I just want to make it clear why it, why it seems like we're talking about trade in different terms than why you might watch on a show where they're talking about getting good deals for your stuff. It's two different conversations. One is comparing it to other theoretical deals you could have made. And one of them is, is comparing it to what you want in comparison to what they have. And how you want that more than what you have. And so you make an exchange, your value increases. Digression aside on that subject, that is not true <laughs> in politics. In politics, politics does not produce anything. And the exchange is always against somebody's will. Now, maybe not everybody's will, but it's against somebody's will. Otherwise, you wouldn't need government to do it, right? If you need government to do it, it's got to be because somebody doesn't want to do it. Because for somebody, it will make mm -hmm. them worse off. For somebody, it's going to decrease value. Every political interaction is win-lose. And this is very important because a lot of people think that government is acting for the people. And so really, everyone wants government to do what they're doing. Or we'll, we'll take it a step farther and say, yeah, when my political party is in charge then really I support them, and so they are doing what I want. But the truth is, is that's not the case. And you can see that if we look back at this case with Union Pacific and Central Pacific, before the government did something, there were not hundreds of thousands of Americans of Americans across the country saying, hey, 
I'm willing to give you $10 to go build a railroad across the continental United States. There was no huge public <laughs> outcry and huge outpouring of money saying, hey, we will give you this money now, go build a railroad, and then 10 years from now we'll enjoy that. Right. right? No, no one's donating money to the railroad fund. And if you had gone and asked all the people who were taxed, and a lot of people had to be taxed for that, you know, sixteen to $48,000 per mile, you know, a lot of people got taxed. If you asked them and said, hey, you're going to be taxed $30 over the next two years, and once again, $30 is much more significant back then, to build this railroad, are you good with that or not? A large <laughs> number of those people were not going to be good with it. Sure, some people may be, but the fact is, unless everyone was, then it's win-lose. Because there are people who are by force getting their money taken from them and used for someone else. So let's go back to, to the robber barons and to these two railroad companies. You know, on the one hand, you have two railroad companies who are operating a zero-sum game, a win-lose game, where they are taking money from the government who took that money by force. They are using that money very, very poorly with a large degree of corruption. And in the end, a railroad is eventually created at a much higher cost than it would have cost in another way. And a lot of people are, are injured in that process. Then on the other hand, you have Hill and his railroad company that basically did the same thing in such a very different way and was able every every step of the process he was doing a win-win where not only was he benefiting but everyone from his employees to the customers to the areas around his railroad tracks were benefiting and this is obviously just one example but we're using it to highlight the principle and the principle is that in a market, you know, everyone benefits. And like I said, we talked about with that, that value increases that in every trade, everyone benefits. And as more and more capital is created, more people benefit versus in a political system where there is that zero sum game where there is this one pie of here's, here's, if I take from you, then you have less and I have more. And, and that is what, that is what the government does. And and whether you approve of any particular action, you have to understand that there is that win-lose in every transaction. Another reason why this is an important discussion to have is that we want the good of, of capitalism. Poverty is not only decreasing under capitalism, but is decreasing faster and faster and faster. The rate, can, the rate at which it decreases continues to increase as we become more capitalistic, as, as countries that have not embraced capitalism do, places like China and uh, India. So if you look at economics today, it's, it's a little more complicated. Yeah, since, since the 1800s, things have not gotten better. You know, we have not said, oh, that was a mistake, and now we're going to work on creating a free market. No, there has been more corruption, there has been more government involvement, to the point that that stories of Union Pacific and Central Pacific are much more common than than of Hill and his yeah. railroad, you know? I would say for big businesses, they're the norm. So people look at big businesses today and they go, what on, what on earth is happening? How does this company get away with this? So that's what 
liberals generally look at big businesses and they go, this company is getting away with a lot. And then conservatives fire back that there's there's government issues there. And uh, as usual, the two parties talk past each other. I would argue even further that conservatives don't fire back and say, that that there's big that there's a government involvement there they would fire back and say no this big business is actually helping the little guy through trickle down economics and that really this big business <laughs> is is our savior no they would they will stand by that big business no, it's true and it's whatever corruption is there that's what they would say um <laughs> I, it needs to be clarified. It needs it's, to be clarified because what you would say is maybe maybe different. No, you're right. You're right. Conservatives will defend big business. They'll look at the good of they'll look at the good of capitalism and they'll say this is good. Therefore, we defend big businesses. Liberals will look at the bad of capitalism and they'll say this is bad. Therefore, we attack businesses. And yeah, the liberals will attack everything. And the conservatives right. will defend and the, everything. And the conservatives will defend everything. And it's a huge mistake because, as you can see from the, just those two stories, we can find more and more stories that point out even slightly different aspects. Not all of them fit this this very uh, clean distinction, right? Some of them are a little more gray, obviously, and some of them are going to highlight different problems than the ones that we've highlighted here. Um, but... But instead of making those distinctions, what we're left with is, as you said, we either support businesses or we don't support businesses, which is such a, a useless distinction, <laughs> which is such a, such a broad mm -hmm. distinction that it completely misses the fact that businesses can do a lot of good and they can also be very unjust. And once you start to say, wait a second, we can make finer distinctions than that. We can actually look closer and we can say that a lot of the practices that are commonly accepted are unjust and need to be eliminated. Because as you said, this, this is not something that happened and then ended. On the contrary, it continued and has become the norm, despite the fact that even at the time they thought it was a bad thing. It has continued and multiplied. And that's why uh, there's often a word thrown around by, by some called crony capitalism, because what they want to distinguish is capitalism, which we generally think of as being motivated by market, by market forces, as Hill was, from a kind of capitalism. It looks like capitalism. It smells like capitalism, but it's driven by fundamentally different incentives because they're political entrepreneurs, not market entrepreneurs. And I want to hit, hit on one more thing that you said there, because it is true that a lot of people see what happened, see what happened in, in that railroad case, even just listening to us, and would say, yeah, the real problem there was that the government should have regulated those businesses even earlier. And, and I understand where you're coming from. The danger with that argument, though, is that as soon as the government gets involved, as we talked about before, 
it changes things because the government is an institution of force. And you can see that because even after those regulations were put in place, it's not like things immediately became clear. You know, another great example would be the financial crisis in 2000, 2008, 2009, all these regulations that were put in place after the fact that they're like, we're now going to fix it. But what's crazy is there were already a ton of regulations in place. It's not like Wall Street yeah. was just this state of anarchy. You know, there there were large government bureaucracies dedicated to controlling Wall Street. And so so my question would be, why didn't that work? And the answer is because bureaucracy and regulation grow and grow and grow. But as they grow, they become less and less efficient, not more efficient. And so they become less able to do what they're supposed to do. Because like we talked about earlier, those incentives change. And as the incentives change more and more, what it means is that those businesses are now just geared towards interacting with the government instead of being geared towards making a better business. This is where partisan lines become particularly vicious because often we feel like we're under attack. And when we're under attack, we get defensive and we defend ground that we don't actually want to defend. If you're conservative, consider the, uh, the possibility that there are fundamental problems with how businesses run in our system. And it's, and it's in relation, yes, it's in relation mainly to how the laws work. If you are liberal, consider the possibility that capitalism itself is at least not as bad as you think it is, but that there is a remarkably corrupt form of capitalism that we have accepted as the norm that should never have been the norm. As Brad was saying with the, with the regulations, they immediately imposed regulations to try to make it so what happened there didn't happen again. And there were likely already many regulations in place. Those regulations have failed. They have failed, and we know that because those kind of things have multiplied. They've increased rather than decreased. They've got to the point where political entrepreneurship, if you are a big business, is the norm. It is how they survive. The lobbyists, we've taken for granted the fact that lobbyists play an enormous role in the system. That should not be the case. And as far as I can tell, there is one way to do that. And, and this is, this is where, this is where socialism is so profound in its diagno, in its diagnosis of, of injustice. Most, for most of history, the tale of political power is a tale of a few people robbing the many. It's the privileged few, it's the nobility, it's the educated, it's the, uh, the people born, born in the right circumstances who have all of the privileges and all of the opportunities, and they wield the power, and they wield the power in their favor. Now, modern countries have done a lot for suffrage, for voting, right? Now, the power is, at least in theory, in everyone's hands. To some degree, the power is in everyone's hands, in countries where everybody can vote. The risk is that once everybody can vote, they can do one of two things. 
They can look at the few who have been robbing them, who've been ripping them off, who've taken advantage of the system, and they can say, no more. Or they can look at the few and they can say, you've been robbing us. Now we want to come in and we're going to take our piece. It's only fair. Now we have the power. We have the reins. We have the votes. And because we are the many and you are the few, we can outvote you. We can, we can find voting blocks in every different, in each voting block now with the power to vote in the modern world, becoming aware of itself, banding together, can come and they can claim their peace. And the problem with this, where we move from the few robbing the many to everyone trying to rob everybody else, is that we are still playing in a zero-sum game. As long as the, the, the tool that you try to fix society with can only take and cannot create, there's a huge problem with that theory. <laughs> Not beyond the fact that it's obviously unjust to then try and use the, the tools of politics to get your cut. Beyond that, that, that moral fact, practically speaking, it can't be done. In fact, every operation of government loses money because it must pay the people in the process, right? Every dollar in taxes is returned in 90 cents because it has to go to the bureaucracies and the bodies that make it possible and in the collecting. It's not just zero sum. It's a, it's not just one, to, it's not just that you can only exchange one it's to worse one, than it's that. that you can only exchange one to 90%. It's the, the exact opposite of the market in that every time there's a transaction, every time there's that, that, that theft, that, that unjust exchange by force, there's actually loss in value in overall total value, not just for one person. But, you know, it's not just win-lose. Right. It's right. lose kind of And win. this is where Brad and I feel so passionately about getting beyond the rhetoric. The rhetoric about big business on the one hand and, uh, and the little guy on the other is the rhetoric we're trying to get beyond here, right? That, that in which, and it's a fundamental aspect of inequality. So hear me over the rhetoric. I'm not saying you need to support big businesses. That's, that's not what I'm saying at all. I'm not repeating any tagline that you hear from a politician. What I'm saying is, you're right. The big businesses are screwing you over. But, but do not throw away the whole system of businesses with it. Because we can look at these examples and we can look at specifics and say, here's how. And we can get into how they're screwing you over and change those things so that it is a more just system, so that there is a lot more social mobility, so that, so that there is economic mobility. Sorry, excuse me. Both would be good, but economic mobility is what we're discussing. <laughs> and if we can do that, it's going to look a lot better. It's going to be a lot better. It's going to be a much more just system. But to do that, you have to say no more and not do it yourself either. Not just go in there and try and get the, the best cut and get the and go and compete politically. And that's the problem is that everybody, the parties and everybody involved in business has become a political entrepreneur, at least the big scale, you know, the mom, the mom and pop shops on the street 
which no, I think everybody's actually fine with the mom and pop shops on the street, right? <laughs> These things aren't doing anybody any harm. Uh, everyone's pretty fond of them. Um, it's the big businesses that become the problem. And it's the big businesses that become the problem because of political entrepreneurship, because they, they, it suddenly becomes worth more to them to use the tools of government than it does to become market entrepreneurs and actually take the risks. If you're getting the subsidies of those, those companies, there's no risk involved. There's no cost to you. You win. You're winning at the expense of everyone else, but it's a guaranteed win, right? If you can woo the politicians, if you can get them in your pocket. And I, I just, I don't know. I don't know, Brad. I, 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 this, this gets me. This, <laughs> I feel more strongly about this than almost anything else. I, I hear the passion in your voice. There's, there's one thing I want to add though, Dan, and that is that going back to, to the, the start of this podcast when we talked about that that Facebook post and their frustration with this system, this inequality that is occurring over and over again. And and the thing is, is that there's only so much you can do in terms of inequality because, because humanity is full of varied individuals and varied – everything is different. We are not the same, right? And so there's always going to be some form of inequality. But – that does not mean that there has to be systemic inequality, and that is absolutely where I agree with the socialists, that something needs to be done to prevent systemic inequality. But here's where I disagree with the socialists. What I would say if I were having a conversation with, with someone from, you know, maybe the Socialist Democrats of America, who is is the group that, that posted that, what I would say is that actually – the problem that's happening and the reason these people can't catch a break is because of all these government regulations. If you go back to the story of Hill and his railroad, the only reason he was ever able to do that was because, number one, when he was working, he was able to save a vast amount of money because this was before there was the income tax. And he was able to save his money faster and easier and invest it. On top of that, he was able to to make quick decisions with his business because there were limited regulations. And that changed everything. It's interesting because today, you know, Dan talked about mom and pop shops, and I bet you could talk to a lot of those mom and pop shops, and they could tell you about the numerous regulations that they have to conform to every day in order to have those their business, and how those regulations are destroying their business. And if you ask then the the legislature legislature who met past those regulations, this is going to be a lot of work for you, I know, but you go back and you ask them why they made those and they would point to some bad player and say, hey, here's this person who did this thing. And then you would look at what that person did and sure enough, there would be even more regulation and even more skewed incentives that caused them to do that. And as you can see, going deeper into this rabbit hole, that really when it comes down to it, the problem is not the lack of regulation. The problem is in this quasi-crony capitalist system that we have now that is so full of complicated rules and systems that no matter who you are, you are some kind of political are, entrepreneur, even if you are that mom and pop shop. You're not trying to hurt anyone, 
but you have to jump through these hoops. And as soon as you start jumping through these hoops, it it takes away from this world of win-win and productivity and become something else entirely. And that's where you get into systemic inequality because you're right, we don't have the opportunities that really we should have. We are stuck in a certain demographic and it is much harder to break out of that demographic. But it's not more regulation that's going to solve it. On the contrary, We've tried that, and we've been continuously adding regulation, I mean, especially over the past 20 years, but going back even into the 1800s, we've been adding regulation, and it's only made that system more entrenched and put us in a worse and worse position. And so like Dan was saying, yeah, you need to reevaluate capitalism because there is a problem, and the problem is that this isn't capitalism as it was 200 years ago. And if yeah, something we doesn't could, change, we could list, it's just uh, going to get worse. Numerous things that could change fundamental things that are, that are, well, some, some, uh, more superficial than others, but some, many of them that are fundamental issues. So you mentioned regulations, regulations are, are a large category. Um, another one is that like so many of the big businesses that you look at, the reason they seem to have so much power is because competitors are being prevented through various means from entering the market. So you get these big businesses that are king. They seem to be able to do whatever they want. They seem to be able to, they, they end up dictating the regulations for their industry, uh, through regulatory capture and a number of other, another of other things. Um, if you didn't, if you weren't aware of like Facebook is going to probably be writing a lot of the rules that are going to govern social media sites, like that's, obviously a bad idea. <laughs> it's disgusting. It's disgusting. It's disgusting. Um, through subsidies that provide perverse incentives um, that are contrary to what the customers and the workers and the, and, and the investors would want. Um, all of these things add together. Here's, here's one that most people don't think about there. There are some that are so fundamental that we've accepted them as a, as a part of the market when they're not. One of them would be the way that banking works. Basic fractional reserve banking would not work without government propping it up. The fundamental way that our banks operate is a product of government intervention. If you look at the stock market, the way Wall Street works, the way that stock prices are determined and exchanged and short selling and all these things, these things, a, a significant portion of them are determined by a strange interaction between laws and big businesses. There's, there's one other one I'll throw out there just while throwing these out is because it shakes our perception of things that we take for granted. The fact that we treat corporations as people, the fact that if I, that if a corporation, if someone, if somebody in a company does something wrong, that person is not punished. The corporation is fined. That's, that is wrong. There are so many times where, where mm -hmm. people should probably go to jail, where there's some kind of misconduct but because it's a business and they're behind the shield of corporate name, they can only be the businesses find as if somehow that addresses problems. Like there's, there's, ah, there, there are a hundred ways this manifests itself. Many of which most people have no idea it's happening because it's developed so slowly over time. And some of which of it was in place by the time we were born. And it justifies that sense that yes, we are being ripped off. There is something wrong. We are, we are being, we are not being granted the opportunities we had.
And I absolutely believe that. And to do that, we have to go back. We have to go back to the places like the robber barons and start drawing better distinctions. You can't simply say they have money, therefore they were bad. It's a terrible simplification of the world that will not lead to clarity and to justice. It will just lead to confusion and misguided solutions. And so what we need to look at is one very simple thing. And we need to go back to what Dan shared earlier, where we have a few choices. And the the first choice is that the few exploit and take advantage of everyone else. Or we have a situation where everyone you know, through the government tries to exploit everyone else. And a good example of that is you can see where where every every time there's a political election, the candidate for your state to go represent your state in in our federal Congress will tell you about all the things they're going to do to get money back for your state. And the implied understanding is that the federal government is taking all this money from us, and so we need to get whatever we can back, right? And so they're going to do that through through grants and through through government, you know, work projects and all sorts of things, right? But the fact is is that what you're doing and what everyone is doing when everyone does that is we've all accepted implicitly the idea that it's okay for the government to even have that money in the first place when really they shouldn't. And the real answer is instead of everyone fighting over this limited pie, which clearly they shouldn't (laughs) have since everyone's just taking it back to the people and all that we're doing is stealing from everyone. And then we're all working so hard to try and make sure we redistribute that money fairly when maybe it shouldn't have even been stolen in the first place. And that is the third option, which is to no longer exploit anyone. And that is by far the hardest option because like Dan said, you know, whether we're talking capitalism, socialism or something else, a government controlled market is what you were born into. I don't care if you're 150 years old, it's what you were born into and it's what you know and it's what I know and to get away from that into something else is going to be difficult. But The beautiful thing is that it's such a simple principle, and so all you need to do is when you're looking at any particular issue is apply that issue of who is exploiting who and how can we stop that exploitation That is a specific question that gets us to the injustice that we can then stop. That's – and note that that's very different. Like you talk about one of the big things as we wrap up, one one of the – big solutions that's on the table right now that people talk about a lot. They talk about like things like a one-time tax for wealthy people or a tax on wealth. I hate that idea. And I hate that idea because if the rich got the wealth justly, then the fact that it's unequal, I don't care about. If the rich people got the, the wealth unjustly, then redistributing a small portion of their money is the wrong solution. If you think the wealthy people have got their money by exploiting other people, then you need to stop the that exploitation, right? <laughs> you don't just like, it'd be like a, a criminal who comes and uh, robs you on the street. They're going around breaking into houses. I'm stealing another Brad example. I'm just going to stop. Brad, you're going to tell your example. 
So so if there's a criminal on the street and they're and they're breaking into homes and stealing money and we eventually catch the criminal, we're not going to say, hey, you have all this money and that is not right. We're going to take 30% of that money and give it back to the people because because it's not fair. No, what we're going to do is arrest that person and stop them from doing that unjust behavior. And that's the true answer. And obviously, we take back all of the money that was stolen and give it not to everyone, but to those it was stolen from because it was their money to begin with. And so that applies to a criminal, but it also applies to to anyone, whether it was legal or not. And that's where we get into the idea of legal plunder, that just because a law makes it so doesn't make it just. And the beautiful thing about laws is that we can change them. And once you do that, I think what you would find is that most of the problems that socialists want to solve will actually be solved. And most of the good and all of the good that conservatives want to conserve would be conserved. And what you would end up with is something a lot fairer. Would be, oh, they'd be amplified tenfold. We should be so much. The poor should have, everybody should have so much more than they have. But especially the poor. The poor are the ones that are, that often that are exploited, that are the easiest to exploit, and they are that are exploited in every interaction of that. Uh, yeah, that we Jeff describe. Bezos they're, they're is not suffering suffer. right now. He's not what we're worried about. <laughs> He's not what we're worried about. He's not what we're worried about. In conclusion, I just want to. I would just like to say, you know, to to those who who posted that post on Facebook, thank you, and thank you for asking some hard questions, and keep asking those questions because. Because like we said, in so many ways, we agree with you. And and there are these huge issues, and these issues need to be addressed. But the key is not to get caught up in this, in this muddying of the water that happens, and instead to see how the government, in so many ways, has distorted and destroyed what could have been something beautiful. And it's our job as, as the American people... It's our job to do something about that. And if we don't do something about that, then it's really our fault for that. It, if it continues to happen, it'll be it'll be our fault. And so we hope you join us in, in an effort to, like you said, as we look at every issue, as you look at everything, as you look at politicians and what they stand for, ask them. You know, a lot of these local candidates, you can actually talk to them. Ask them how they feel about government intervention and the role of government. And, and, the inter- and the answers will be very interesting and hopefully informative that you can find candidates who actually care about helping you and helping you in a way that will actually help you and not just in name only. 